Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. Hey there. We have a fun special guest today, um, someone very close to our hearts and who we work with very frequently, um, PhD candidate Kylie Thompson. Uh, and I have her bio here. So let me read it aloud. Kylie. Read that bio. Read that bio, Jordan. You know, I hate reading. Um, Kylie <laughs> is an Egyptology PhD candidate in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm so familiar. Yeah, it says. She received her bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of Arizona and holds a master's degree in Egyptology from Indiana University Bloomington, which has a great language program. Kylie is currently a researcher and graphic designer for the UCLA Coffins Project, which investigates coffin reuse in ancient Egypt during the Third Intermediate Period. Her dissertation research focuses on the documentation and contextualization of ancient Egyptian statuary reuse, including documenting statues via high-resolution photography, photogrammetry, RTI, which is reflectance transformation imaging, and traditional art historical methods in order to analyze the statues for signs of recarving, reinscribing, and other indicators of object reuse, which is the topic of our episode today. So welcome, Kylie. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I feel like I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. <laughs> yeah, you're always like in the background while we're recording things, like sitting yeah. there listening to us. You hear the click clack of a keyboard. It's me in the background. Probably working on a book about reuse in the, you yeah. know, right? <laughs> so exactly. Coffins reuse. I mean, I guess I can ask any update on, on the boot. We just met today, right? Kylie, oh, Amber, yes, Kylie and I met today. We brought in Mate as a new um, helper for the next book, but we got our edits for the book from American University Cairo Press. And the edits are mostly text oriented edits, mm -hmm. but there are a few things to to change in the InDesign. And of course, everything has to be put into the InDesign files that we have. So we're all going to, we've already picked a week that we're going to invade Kylie's place and then and sit in the, in the office room <laughs> and just be like, okay, page 24, we need to change the spelling to whatever. And then, you know, we have to make a lot of formatting choices. And, and I have like five big edits and Amber, you've got another like four or something like that. I mean, it's, I think it's good. They, th they thought we did a good job. Kylie, what do you think? How much yeah. work is it? Yeah, no, that was, well, first things first, they said, great job, which we were like, you are so welcome. We worked really hard. <laughs> it was just, I felt like the whole time with the InDesign, not the research, obviously, but the InDesign process, we were like a ragtag group of champions, trying, <laughs> a bunch of Egyptologists trying to work with InDesign, but um, they were really happy with it. So in terms of edits, again, it's just like a lot of like little tiny technical things. And so we're hopeful that we'll have this crazy weekend. We'll get most of it done with and then just maybe something here or there to, to finish, you know, on our own. So I think it's really good. And just, just to be clear, I'll say it again, that if you have almost 1,000 images and you want to put them yeah. in a book, no publisher in the academic world or anywhere else is going to say, yeah, that'd be great unless it's a picture <laughs> book. And so I had to offer... I had to offer us up body and soul and say, mm -hmm. if I do in-house all the InDesign, all the layout ourselves and, and give you a publication ready manuscript, will you publish this? Mm -hmm. And they agreed all color. And um, it's going to be it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a great. I think seminal work just because these these objects haven't ever been published in this way before. No, with the, with no. the you know, micro analysis that you provide. So, yeah. Well, I'm sure whenever this comes out, we'll do a huge multi-episode <laughs> multi, uh, <laughs> series on those. Um, but that's great. But okay, let's dive into to Kylie's stuff. Before I get into it, I think we always have to talk about definitions. Um, so, and I think we've talked about this a bit with Kara's uh, work as well, working with reuse. How do you define reuse for your your research? How is it different than, you know, other verbs like erasure, nafio memoriae, recycling, restoration? You know, leaders try to couch maybe these acts in different ways. Um, and so for your work, 
are you taking reuse more holistically and then seeing the kind of more social contextual ways it's being used and naming those or um or how do you see the yeah no that is a great question and i think it totally plagues reuse studies in general is how do we define it um there was a conference years ago or a workshop years ago that Kara and I were both um, in attendance for. And this, I mean, it was huge. It was a huge problem. People trying to figure out, like, if we should define it, how we should define it. I was at um, Cambridge, and- right? There was. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was Helen Strudwick's. And, and she yes. started with the definition. She's like, we need better definitions. How are we mm-hmm. going to define this? And and started off with with that. Yes. And feature. And I think then what we realized right away is everyone was defining it differently. So for my own research, I use Kara's definition from her forthcoming volume um, on coughing reuse, but she describes reuse as or defines it as being um, the intentional transformation of an already crafted thing or building into a recrafted thing or building, thus transferring its status from owned element into commodity reworked by multiple agents and liable to movement for new use and new ownership. Um, Because I think it clearly sets parameters, but it's also flexible. And I think the next most important thing to do is you have to describe what you're talking about, um, you know, just like in a case by case situation. In my case, I'm often looking like what was said in my bio. It's sort of the thing I always bring up. So people exactly like you said, so people know what I'm actually doing. Um, analyzing statues for signs of recarving, reinscribing, other other reworking and depending on what has been done to the object and and in what context and things like this, it can mean totally different things. Sometimes there's reinscribing because something's been fixed. You know what I mean? That's not always the case, but just to further explain how this can be so incredibly complicated. I want, I want to jump in really fast. And usurpation is indeed a part of this. But when you're discussing reuse, and Kylie, you're mentioning like, is it a modification to fix something or is it a modification mm-hmm. to reuse? So reuse is kind of like, Accusing somebody of manslaughter versus first degree murder. It's all about intention. It's all about what it is that they that they have in mind. And that's what why we fight about it so much, because you're you're trying to go into the mind pattern of an ancient person that is not preserved to us by looking at the actions of modification on an object, whether it's a statue or a coffin and say, oh, that they intended to do this to reclaim it and use it for someone else to reuse it and it it's it's but you can see it so like if you're looking at a statue and it's been repaired it's a different look to the modification than if you're looking at a statue and the face has been redone mm-hmm. for a reuse so you're hoping that those actions actually speak to what the intention is but it's all about the intention of the person it's it's mega complicated so one thing that often comes up is the use of the word usurpation, which, again, depending on who you are, what your research is, like people have different reactions towards that word. A lot of people are, uh, you know, find it to be to have negative connotations. Um, some people find it the appropriate word to use, depending on the intention. Like Kara said, we're, we're so dependent on the intention, which, you know, we have to get at through these tiny little, you know, clues on a statue. Yeah hard to know the intention right and so what scholars end up doing is then like no knowing what we know about political history if if there's a hard disconnect between one ruler and another then we're more likely to label that usurpation whereas Mm -hmm. if there's one ruler following another with a succession and a connection then we're more likely to call it a a reuse but like so say you're going from Hatshepsut to to Tutmosis you're going to get more of a usurpation use um, or definition and an imposed intention. Whereas if you're dealing with Ramses II reusing Amenhotep III or Amenemhet III, then you might get more of just a plain reuse because we're not sure if it's a usurpation. But that's why I like the word reuse because it's more general and it's less problematic. And then you can have specific articles and discussions and arguments built upon whether or not a particular case is is an intentional usurpation. The, the mm-hmm. word does have meaning. The word yep. can speak to us, but it can't be a catch-all for what you see in Egyptological data sets every day. And, so that's and, more of the umbrella term. And then if you have the context available, you can maybe send then, you know, it's a reuse, but then, and we know it's usurpation or it's a reuse and we know it's, you know, intentional, intentional like dimaltu memoriae, or it's a reuse and it's like honoring or restoring 
And so reuse is more the umbrella term that encapsulates all these other more focused contexts of of um, reworkings happening. I hate to make it even more confusing, but sometimes when I look at all of these, I'm like, some of them still seem so separate. Mm. Like even when we, that's that's why this is, it's it's such a challenge for us to really um, get at some of these issues. And I think it's why so many people, especially with statues and especially with statues of our favorite kings, for example, they don't even want to talk about it at all mm-hmm. because so many of our definitions or these words, I mean, that we want to ascribe, they're too loaded. Like you said, you you brought up Demnatio Memoriae, um, Iconoclasm, which is like a later type of action, right? Um, these all are, you know, they have this negative um, connotation. They mean to deny the existence of the previous owner uh-huh, completely. Uh-huh. We have ritual killing of statues. We have caching of statues. I know you might want to get into that later. No, so, so like this there, is yeah. great because like all yeah. of this goes back to your, like the material you're studying, which is statues. Mm. And so like, yeah. why are statues such the perfect corpus for you to study this? Like we obviously know Kara's work with coffins and why they're a great corpus for looking at this phenomenon. But like, what about statues? And then like, I think in a West, more modern Western context, we have an idea of how statues work, like, oh, to commemorate someone or something like this. But can you give our listeners some background to how statues worked in ancient Egypt? They weren't just like commemorating Napoleon or something. They were like, you know, alive. Yeah. Um, so if you could touch on both those points. Yeah, of course. Why don't I, I'll start first by saying like what a statue was in ancient Egypt, because even things like this, like these modern categorizations, it can get it can get lost to us. But um, the way we seem to understand it, again, is that statues are they're meant to be a medium that embodies the cultural and ideological beliefs of the ancient Egyptian, usually rulers and elites. Right. This is this is an object type that as far as it's preserved to us, it's usually rulers and elites. And we're able to figure this out based on characteristics like its material. So what is it made out of? Wood, hard stone, metal, you know, things like this, which then illuminates the ideological concepts that informed the creation of the object and its and all the ideology that is packed therein. Um, but then the primary function of the statue was that of being inhabited by the soul or the life force um, of the thing that it represented, which could be, you know, a person, God, animal, and then the statue would benefit and the person would benefit from the exchanges of their statue cult in perpetuity. So therein is why statues are such a perfect medium for studying reuse um, and craft production. Can you give us an example? Yeah. A priest has to conceptualize it. There's an opening of the mouth, right? It's meant to then be crafted. Um, in the likeness of the person or thing or whatever it, God it's meant to represent. Um, yeah, it's exactly. They bring it to life. So now it has like part of the king's the juju inside of it. Yeah. Which in itself, I won't, I'm sure there are other episodes that delve into that yeah. concept more. So rewatch that because that is, you know, confusing in and of itself. Uh, but then let's say it's in a temple. It sits there. Um, it's, um, it can receive offerings. It can actively participate in rituals. Like it can do so many things. Um, you can get them in tombs. You can get tiny statuettes for like elite people in their tombs. We know that they were also like in palace context, which is not really preserved to us in most cases. And just for anyone who's interested in statues, like in a domestic context and household context, we almost know nothing about it just because of preservation. Um, so maybe and then I'll also just say for this particular conversation, I'm mainly talking about um, royal statues in most cases and then sometimes private statues as well. But, you know, this is what's preserved to us. I love I love all of this about the statue. And it yeah. reminds me that as a coffin person and as a person who deals with royalty, but really most of the images I'm looking at are of the high elite, maybe lower elite craftsmen, people like that. But number one, the the statue is the first three-dimensional anthropomorphic image. And it precedes the coffin. The coffin in the old and middle kingdoms, it was this box, you know? The earliest coffins were big, big square boxes that were meant to... (laughs) Boats, kind of, yeah. It's like a boat. And then a big square box meant to contain a flexed body, like a body in the the childlike, um, what is it called? Fetal position, right? And then when they start to lay them out, there are these long boxes and they don't get anthropomorphic and statue-like until really late, until like 
1500, maybe a little earlier than that, BCE. And that's that's kind of crazy. And then the this this statue-like coffin is nested then in my world. So you put the statue inside the statue inside the statue, but the juicy statue center is the mummy itself, right? The body itself, mm -hmm. which is kind of cool. And and then I like to think of it processing. It's something meant to be carried, right? This coffin, which is not something that you expect a royal statue to do, but they're proving more and more that these statues were like walking. They would like rock them and move them to different places. And then I like to think of, for my work, I like to think of elite statue cults that could have an endowment connected to them of money and lands that they, the statue owned to receive mm -hmm. offerings, but also that they lined a processional space so the ritual could go by them. And you've got all these elite, these dead elite dudes whose families are keeping their statue cults going so that they can always have a front row seat at whatever festival is happening in a temple. So, you know, statues serve all kinds of purposes. And, mm -hmm. the, and what do I always go back to? It's always about power. It's always about embodying power. Um, but yeah, but go, my, but go on. My note for this particular yeah. question is statues as mechanisms of power is yeah. like what I want. Yeah. You know, that's what I yeah. wanted to remind like, myself to say. So it's yeah. just it's crazy. It's true. But uh, Kara's point about coffins and statues being kind of similar entities. And I think the fact that arguably they're the only two objects types that are reused in these ways usurped because they embody the person's kind of life force is interesting to think about right and that's the thing you don't want to happen to your coffin or your statue you don't because you want to keep receiving offerings mm -hmm. you want to keep functioning forever mm -hmm. um and so it's interesting that these two objects are very much imbued with the person aspects of the personhood of the person who commissioned it and that they are let, the let materials that suffer these things let me put it this way you can reuse a house you yeah. can reuse a boat but, it but if you it. reuse a statue you have to erase the name and put in a new name mm. or something so either it demands more manipulation that we that leaves a trace Whereas yeah. if you reuse a house, say you, it's a violent thing, you kick a whole family out and you put a new family in the house, you're not going to see it in the archaeological record, but you will see it in a statue reuse. That was part of your initial question is why then the statue? Because, yeah, why statues? Exactly, because of these traces. And, let's just, and, and obviously it's, it's still really complicated. Like I'm right in the middle of like my own of dissertation course, yeah. data set and it's just, and it's crazy and it's scattered and everything is different. It's not perfect. And this is what, you know, like Kara always says with like coffin reuse, it's messy. And so, but with statues, especially because I specifically work with hardstone statues, some in reuse, in, in some cases, the cases I'm looking at, it literally leaves a mark. When you're uh -huh. reusing a statue, if you're re-carving the face, it leaves traces. And so you can study that through, again, just traditional art historical methods, which we're all trained in. If you're getting a PhD in Egyptology, right? And then I use these other digital methods to try to enhance you know, what I'm seeing. So again, reworking the face, if you're changing the eyes, changing the nose, changing the mouth, if you're reinscribing, if like a, a statue of a king, there's a back pillar usually, and or a type of statue will have a back pillar. It's usually mm -hmm. a place where there are inscriptions. Cartouches will be, you know, recarved. Entire inscriptions will be recarved. So you can see that. What would be really interesting is if we had a better idea about repainting. We obviously know it happened, mm -hmm. but wow, that would be really useful. But that's yeah. something that's not really preserved to us. There's so many things like this that make statues. Oh, and obviously movement. And I, I hope we can get more into that later because movement had to have been such a, a visible um, component of statue reuse mm -hmm. that we, we have to just, I mean, truly like hypothesize about using whatever theory um, helps us answer those questions. But so that's, I think, you know, from my perspective, why they're such a great um, object type for studying reuse. So this actually brings up um, our recent episode that was just released on iconoclasm, which Kylie, you brought up in your different word soup that gets messed around when looking at reuse. We were talking about how iconoclasm, you need almost it not to be perfect, because you need the kind of leftover bits so people remember and know the the damage, the destruction happened, right? If you do too good of a job, no one will know, besides like people within living memory, obviously, but like yeah. people beyond that won't remember 
that, you know, under the Vatican was whatever, or under Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there was this other temple or whatever, right? Um, you need to preserve the memory of the destruction to keep the power. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder with statuary too, if you think, and I don't think there's a good um, answer to this, but I'll ask it anyway. If there was a purposeful, like not doing, because you could take a statue and like totally like recarve it completely. Mm-hmm. But we see when, when we have these statues that appear to be reused and recarved, they leave traces of the old one purposefully question mark behind like they want people not to know always, oh this was yeah. an a3 and ramses is reusing yeah. it and it's now this new thing yeah that's kind of my question so ramses wants people to know that he's usurping a3 who was such a great king and i'm even better or like in a kind of classic kind of sense yeah. but i i agree that we must look for intention to decide if it's reuse with to reuse to claim as your own or just an innocuous sort of reuse to make it into something else. You know, when, yeah. when, when something is a block is reused in a later building and it's put fa- decoration face down, then you know, it's not with the intention of reclaiming the power of that yeah. block necessarily. Maybe the, the money and the wealth that goes into having a hard stone and putting it as the threshold. And that's a big deal, but not like the decoration itself. Um, but like, I'm th- I was thinking of Hatshepsut statues when you said that, Jordan. Like, you have Hatshepsut statues. If Tutmos III had decided to recarve those and do a damn good job recarving them, like taking down the name and putting in a new name so you couldn't even tell, and leaving the face, we wouldn't know much about Hatshepsut in terms of her statuary program. I think there would be great disagreements about whether that was Tutmos III or Hatshepsut. And... And how we understand it. And indeed, there may be many Tutmos III statues out there that could be Hatshepsut that we don't see as such because we don't want to, um, because he did such a great job reusing them. But because he ritually killed them, you uh, you, you mentioned that earlier, Kylie, mm-hmm. I like that um, idea, and threw them in a pit, we can we then assign a much crueler and harsher intention to Hatshepsut's removal from power within ritual spaces than we would otherwise so you know but but the question is do you think Tomas the third kind of went through that same logic like oh if i just take her statues and recarve them no one will know versus i want there to be maybe a ceremony where these statues are ritually killed and it's you know what what i think it's a little i think it's a little of both i Mm -hmm. think it's a little let's take the analogy of the islamic state that uh-huh. shows and displays itself on video, disseminates these videos, jackhammering up sacred an- sites of, of antiquity, and then takes most of it and puts it on the mar- art market to sell for cash. So you've made something scarcer. You've made a big show. You've advertised it to the people you need to advertise it to. And then you benefit from the rest in a monetary way. So you smash up like 20 of them and then you reuse the colossi. He does that. He reuses the colossi. He doesn't smash those up. That's that's perhaps a bridge too far in terms of labor and time and how much it would take to do that to a colossal statue. He reuses the temple spaces. He doesn't smash them up. He, he takes them for himself. But he needed a little bit of a show of the of the smashing. So I think it would arguably, I don't think anyone set that up yet for Amenhotep III being smashed up by Ramses II, who I think was in no way trying to be friends with that part of the 18th dynasty. I think he wanted to show very much that he was the strong king in reaction to that overzealous, religiously overzealous late 18th dynasty um, succession of kings. But I don't know, Kylie, what do you think? Yeah, well, so this is for you to work through. You get to work through. Good luck. Exactly. (laughs) And so this is, I I was going to say, it's like, obviously so crazy complicated but Jordan your initial point of like how do we know if it was supposed to be like observed that it was reused this is what like hopefully again do through this like systematic study of like exactly what is reused in what way when you recar this is this is actually like the biggest challenge for me and and what hopefully for all those listeners um interestingly awaiting my dissertation just kidding um, <laughs> when you recarve a space and so it no longer just kidding, resembles not kidding. 
I'm like, who's actually waiting? Just Just us. Yeah, right. (laughs) But, um, but, um, so when you have, I'll, I'll sort of start again with the idea of the statue of the king, because it's frankly a bit easier to talk about, right? There's supposed to be a royal portrait and there's scholarship on this. Dimitri Labrie, for example, royal portraiture that's supposed to be recognizable to the people. Which people? It depends. Rain by rain, who is meant to encounter these statues? Again, one of the really interesting, really challenging things about working with statues. And so if you completely alter that face, you have completely taken away all of the cartouches that could have been recognized, you know, by other people and you make it something new. What do you do with that? And with Ramses II, this is one of the obviously of this this person, this individual, this this king's reign is essentially notorious for statuary reuse and how we decide on the intentions is still just like so hotly debated because there is a big argument for or a lot of people who would like to argue for um, Ramses II is just incorporating essentially like all of the 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 good the good magic right all the good things about his predecessor statues statue cults their statues their colossal statues and it's not meant to be irreverent it is just incorporating that into so his, more like honoring yeah. the like because if we can think about the king's boss something that's being passed down from king to king then like and does, the statues are his by default yeah, like, does he own the statues already? Which is something like I even for this, this is a, another podcast, like, how do we define ownership for these pieces? You know, the easiest answer is, well, the king owns everything during his reign. But I'm not satisfied with that answer, right? There, It's obviously much more complicated than that. The people, I mean, even just thinking about who's involved in this, who's deciding what statues are reused and when. Um, so, okay, you have that. But ideologically, how is that supposed to work if you are completely getting rid of all traces of the previous owner? It's the only reminder of potentially who this would be who it was meant to depict originally um like the case of amenhotep iii is people who within that limit you know before the pieces were used knew that throughout the landscape amenhotep iii who again irrevocably changes the monumental landscape of ancient egypt at, at during his reign because of how many statues he has up um, and other things obviously so then is it meant to be noticed by people after the fact, right? If you if there's no more traces of of that previous individual, and this is what I'm trying to square away, and there's a lot of really um, intense opinions about but it. You, do you think? But do you think there's no traces? That's the thing, because you can look at you know you can look at a so-called Ramses the second piece, and you go ah like that looks a little but a three <laughs> and four because so, like we know we can yeah. see it. But now I, I have so many quite I think that there is in during his reign, right? Can't you imagine like com- like this is a spectacle? Oh, and yeah, it like is. going into Como yeah. Hatan yeah. and like pulling yeah. down those big statues and then yeah. them disappearing and then them getting yeah. re-erected somewhere else. And you're like, whoa, yeah. wait. So this is, I think, like in those, you know, particular moments and contexts, like this is it's obviously huge. And it is. How could it not be known if they all disappear and then they're or they're ritually moved from, like you said, like from Como Hatan to, you know, the Ramesseum or Karnak or whatever, right? The list goes on. You could do this in the North as well, which we just like can't even get into today. But, um, you know, you have all what, these what do things you think, happening. What do you think, for instance, about Ramses II's two portraits? In terms of like his... Can we explain his... what this is first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, okay. So there's, you know, Kylie, yeah. you, or Kylie, someone, yeah, you can do it too, George. Sure. I was just going to lay the groundwork. So there's yeah. one of the ideas is that within Ramses II reign that he has two portraits. You can see one very early on in his reign, which is much more Ramazid, arguably, yeah. like if you look at Seti or something like this. Yeah, exactly. He had like the big puppy cheeks. If you think of the Turin piece. Do they um, call it an aquiline nose? Like they he, has, he has a very aquiline nose. And any images we reference, I will put in the Substack post so you can also see those for this week. Then the argument is that he starts incorporating a lot of A3 reuse and that because of this, the portrait changes to be more A3-like. Mm-hmm. A similar, I guess, to Kara's um, Hatshepsut T3 model because T3 looked very much like Hatshepsut. Mm-hmm. And so... If you just automatically make your portrait style more Amenhotep-y, then if you're reusing a lot of his work, 
people maybe recognizable. It's for, we have a harder time maybe claiming it's a three rework because you're like, oh no, but that's also what his portraiture looked like at that time as well. Mm-hmm. And this is something I mean, I run it. I've been running into this issue is uh, this idea of like the pieces that were created in this second portrait style for just for our sake, right? The the later portrait style um, versus pieces that are just obviously reused. There are telltale traces of um, the iconography associated with Amenhotep III statues. And obviously, Betsy Bryan and Ariel Kozlov um, have a, a volume on Amenhotep III's statues and, and other art. So you could, you could, if you want to get into that and really do the deep dive into Amenhotep III and also, you know, she, she, calls into question why does Ramses II reuse so many of Amenhotep III's statues? So there's obviously something there. Um, in the Norse, we know he's also reusing um, colossal Middle Kingdom statues. Those are being, um, you know, brought into temple spaces, brought to his new capital, Pair Ramses. So totally confusing to try to suss out intentions unless you're doing like a context-centered approach like what is happening you know in Thebes what is happening at these specific temples because we have different actors involved what exactly are they reusing reinscribing reworking where are things moving so how about looks or temple Ramses II's reuse program at looks or temple let's mm -hmm. talk about that the church we named last time in our episode on iconoclasm which Hagia Sophia, and I mentioned Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, which is my favorite because right there in the name, it's an amazing church on the outskirts of Rome. Also, it's clearly meant to be St. Mary, but on top of Minerva, she has surpassed Minerva. But we're not going to lie and tell you that that you don't know that Minerva is there. Mm -hmm. We know that you know, but we want Mm -hmm. you to know that we know that you know. And then you mention it and, and it's a claim of the space because then yeah. if you look at looks or temple that way, you can mm-hmm. see it in exactly the same way. Yes, I completely agree with that. I do think this is, you know, back to the comment earlier on about statues being mechanisms of power. I feel like this is going to cause controversy for whatever reason amongst the statue people who may or may not be listening. I'm not sure. Um, because they want it to be very, again, reverent, ideologically centered. Um, it's not meant to necessarily be a throwdown. Or then again, like like you said, Jordan, earlier, for the modern researcher, it throws into question which ones are actually reused. Yeah. And I feel like for, you know, late 19th, 20th dynasty, people don't have a hard time believing like, oh, it's access issue. Oh, they don't have the manpower. They can't co-op the laborers. They can't yeah. to go build these, you know, to go quarry this huge stone. That's why they're reusing stuff. But for yeah. Ramses, the great... Everyone seems to be yeah. so great and powerful and he used building stuff everywhere. Why would he be reusing stuff? He can go quarry his own granite and whatever yeah. statues. He doesn't need to reuse them. And so then, therefore, you have to fall into some other type of more ideologically charged issue, either of yeah. he's trying to connect himself to great Amenhotep III mm-hmm. or he's trying to, like, take over him in some way yeah. in a more, like, negative power situation. Yeah, it almost becomes like super black and white. Like there's not room for mm-hmm. that gray area, which I think is the whole point is it is there's so much. Messy. <laughs> yeah, it's just very, very messy. Picture. Which kind of brings me back to the double portrait. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't have an answer for this. And I'm being yeah. very honest. I, I don't know myself. Like if, is it just an economical reason? Like, oh my God, if I'm going to take over a hundred some statues, I don't want to like recarve the face to get that narrower Thutmeside sort of look that I I feel I put in my court statues or my court facing smaller statues that really show me as I want as as I feel I look with the aquiline uh-huh. nose and the chubbier cheeks but a narrower face right than an Amenhotep the third style face he could have done it because Amenhotep the third's pieces you can cut them back and down you can there is a lot of uh-huh. fleshy fatness <laughs> that you can use as your material he could have done it and he didn't. Now, so the question for you in your dissertation, and I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you to pick it yet, and it may be a combination of both, is did he keep the fleshy or the the broad face, Mm -hmm. the second style, if you like, the Ramsey's two second style, did he keep it because it was just more economical and he couldn't be bothered with having a craftsman 
um, atelier that was trained up and down North and South Delta to the third cataract to get all of these pieces recarved in that way. Or, or what, so it's just like money and cost and, or was it that he, he wanted a little bit of Amenhotep the, the third left behind so he could be like, look, bitches, I am now claiming everything that this 18th dynasty inbred family was. I am now taking it. Like, am, or are we reading too much into it? And I don't know the answer mm-hmm. to this. And I'll I, say, I'm, yeah. I'll say, obviously, I don't know the perfect answer to this either. But I will say to your latter two points, one, the idea of like, okay, like, did did he not want to take back a certain part of his face? But in other examples that we see, there is like, you know, they take back, like the, they change the eyes. He reworks the nose. He cuts the chin. Um, you know, he move, He has to move his band. He yeah, cuts a lot of work. It, it's so, a lot of work. And, and it requires changes the chest, changes yeah. to the chest, changes to the Belly. waist. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. to the belly he, he wants to look fit <laughs> he's mm-hmm. trying to look really um, yeah. and um you know you have these other changes the kilt is changed sometimes like it's, mm-hmm. it's shorter you know things like this depending um obviously to you know the the very easy bland answer to a match what he wants it to look like or whoever mm-hmm. is deciding this right um so all those changes are made so then why not like okay well do we want to cut in the cheeks a little bit more why don't so we make is it, it then the latter even two. more yeah yeah so do we also is there that element of like in this particular case it has become about it it is about power as well in this way and so i think there's probably like there has to be you know a combination of multiple things happening at once and i think i just want to say and i know that this is you are well aware of this and you have to fight this um often this point of why do we need it to be like it can't have anything to do with the economy if it's ideological mm-hmm. when like let's just think about what value actually is or to jump off of that so if if ideological yeah. reasons are not mutually exclusive to economic reasons and i agree yeah. with you completely yeah. then what about reasons that have to do with mm-hmm. craft organization because mm-hmm. ramsey's too like ramsey like Owen what's up the third mm-hmm. in the dynasty before him but much less he seems to delegate to a whole yeah. bunch of elites, more like Akhenaten, like, mm-hmm. I need this done. Here's some cash. Spend it how you like. I just need it fucking done. Mm-hmm. And so he sends his cash out and his dudes out. And his dudes are like, he just needs this done. We need the face change. We need the body change. He needs to look yeah. hot. And, but like, <laughs> let's not like redo it all. Let's like, you know, keep some of it. So then there's just normal human reactions to, yeah. we've got these statues to deal with. Let's, mm-hmm. let's do it so that it's as economical as possible and not super difficult. And then it becomes, I don't want to say laziness, but like the easiest route from point A to point B for all of these delegated guys efficiency. rather than mm-hmm. right, efficiency. efficiency of yeah. a delegated system. Yeah. And there it becomes less about, because you look at Amenhotep Third stuff, it's like perfect. Beautiful. And his, yeah. the perfection was the point that was yeah. part of his power. Whereas Ramses II, it's different. Yeah. It's, the numbers are the point. The yeah. the mm-hmm. delegation uh, is the point. The movement is the point. The absolutely. So, so it's a different. Absolutely. it's a different setup of you how need to power change is displayed. It, but yeah. maybe it doesn't need to be changed that much. And mm-hmm. that's they're hitting that sweet spot. It mm-hmm. can't be yeah. not changed at all. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be changed enough. Um, but you obviously yeah. don't want to go sit and recarve. That's a lot of time. So it's like, and I think all of this really brings up. Kylie, your methodological work of attacking mm-hmm. this issue. Um, so I'm going to move move on to the different methods you you work with to kind of look at reuse and try to piece out and give answers to these obviously very difficult questions. So mm-hmm. um, as you talked about a bit, that you use traditional art historical methods, which are very much based off of what we're trained in when yeah. we when we enter our PhD programs. This the eye, like developing your yeah. eye. And things like yeah. that. Obviously, yeah. some people are better at it than others because we have yeah. all different skill sets. Kara's very good at it. So we're, we're yeah. very lucky in having a good a teacher and, you know, yeah. having so many art history classes where we would just look at objects and, you know, just practice. And it's a lot of it is just practice, having the eye for it um, and looking at things over and over again. I wanted to be clear, too, that you can't even take the RTI and the photogrammetry if you don't have this solid mm-hmm. foundation in the art historical methods. And again, and this is where we're so fortunate um, to be under the tutelage of 
Kara, because this oh, is something, <laughs> but I'm just, you know, it's true because we really got into it. And obviously like the statue and it doesn't exist in isolation. So along with our historical methods, you're using some more new hot tech, RTI and photogrammetry and things to look at these things of reuse. So one, can you give a really brief, not too nerdy background into RTI and photogrammetry, just so people mm-hmm. know what these techniques are? And then, yeah, so when you're using them, art, you know, typical art historical methods, photogrammetry, RTI, really good photography, what are you actually seeing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll start by saying what they are first. And I know a lot of people have been using RTI and photogrammetry for different reasons, answering different research questions. And so um, reflectance, I'll, I'll say what my research questions are shortly, but RTI, or like Jordan said, reflectance transformation, transformation imaging, um, is essentially, it's it's non-invasive. It's a computational photographic method that captures an, a subject's surface shape and color and enables the interactive relighting of the subject from any direction. So that's like the sort of like, you know, the quick and dirty technical way of describing it. So what do you actually do? So you have an object, let's say, in my in, in my own research, I have a statue. You are essentially, you have a, a camera, a remote flash, and you there's an umbrella method you take 48 photos you are like working around the clock like it's like one two three four so you you know you're imagining you're you're looking at your object and you're looking at a clock you have 12 points around the object um, and then you work into the center like you're following you know the dome of an umbrella right and you're you're taking these different photos essentially what you're dependent on is raking light and then the computer and the software takes these images that you've taken. There's other things involved, but it, it can give you one composite image where you can relight the photo. So for me, working with hardstone statues, where I'm looking for, again, evidence of secondary tool marks, recarving of facial features, um, these incongruous inscriptions in polish. This is huge for us um, working in, you know, with hardstone statuary, erase text, maybe repainting, meh. It's kind of, again, this can be a challenge. Um, and then, you know, and any other sort of like something that you're going to see on the surface of the object is what I can see more clearly when I'm working with RTI. Um, the, the computer system, too, like lets you move where the light source is coming from, right? And yes. so you can get it's these re- really amazing raking light. And I think everyone's been in situations yes. where, you know, the light's like just perfect when you're taking a photo of something and you, you just have that raking light and you can really mm-hmm. see you know, inscriptions really yeah. well or things like this. And so by using the software, you can really move the light wherever you want it. You can manipulate it around. Yeah. It's um, like you're really taking your get, flashlight yeah. or again, your remote flash and, and you, you don't just, have to physically be there anymore. Yeah. yeah. And this is really useful if one, if you're working in the field or two, again, in my, usually for me, it's been working in museums where I have a couple hours to look at an object and how am I going to study this remotely later on? Um, but it's like I tell everyone, it's really just like the the ability to move that raking light after the fact is so crazy huge. Because often when you're going in to look, in my case, like at a Ryu statue, I don't know exactly what I'm going to see. I know that there are certain things. One, if it's been published before or someone's noted it, okay, that's useful. I I know certain areas like that I would want to have uh, an RTI composite image for. So I'll do different areas of the object. Um, but sometimes you realize like, oh, you know what? The uraeus was actually cut back. I can see this. If you imagine raking light, you think of when you take stone back, you can't add stone on. So they'll take things back. Um, maybe the polish is now different. There is a different type of chisel mark that you're going to see that can help you identify like something has been altered here. And that's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Something has been altered here. Um, um, you might then think, well, then how do you know it's for use? And that's something I think Hopefully I'll talk more about in a moment because this is just like one tool in the toolkit huh. in a broader, you know, context, broader. Do you use photogrammetry as well? Yes, which is just um, taking a bunch of overlapping photos of an object um, and uh, a three-dimensional object is created from these overlapping photos. I specifically, I know a lot of people are familiar with photogrammetry now. It's much more popular Let's say I have a life-size statue. I'll take something like 350 photos just to give sort of an idea of how many overlapping photos that you're taking um, of all different angles systematically throughout, you know, over the object. And then you end Unlike up... Unlike 
But unlike like a random 3D model, photogrammetry is to scale. And so I want to emphasize that like you can get like 3D modeling things on your phone or whatever. And like it will make a cute little model. Mm. But like the work that you're doing is all to scale. I use targets. I use measurements. So it's like a much, it's like a, yeah, it's a much more scientific refined process yes. than just like making a 3d model exactly like something. on your phone or something yeah, and i sketch fab or something yeah yeah and this is because what my research question is is not just about like maybe like taking 3d models and and of objects and re- putting them in a tomb to see like potentially what the tomb layout could be like it's because i'm looking specifically at the object i'm looking for like i mentioned before areas that have been altered um reworked recarved there's there's you know, tiny little details that I'm looking for. And again, it is, I have it done to scale. I, I use targets, I use high resolution photography, things like this. So you end up with one, like a 3D model of the current state of an object. And then that's with photogrammetry and with RTI, you end up again with an image where you can relight the object with where your flash was going off around the object. Um, so you can study it really intensely. There are things that you can observe that I wasn't able to observe over direct empirical observation at a museum because you never know what the lighting conditions are going to be. You don't know how long you have. Um, all of these things um, can affect that. Can you give us an example of you using these techniques and mm-hmm. then what you found and then what you think they mean for the yeah. statue's story? Yeah. So one of my favorite, one of my favorite examples, it's a statue of Amenhotep II that was reused by Ramses II, found at Karnak Temple, it was found in the Moot Precinct. It is already known to have been reused. And so that was, it was like one of my first case studies where I actually went and visited the object. And this object, when it was excavated, Margaret Benson excavated it, um, what, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So where's the statue? The Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I can't remember the accession number off the top of my head, but if you look up, you know, Amenhotep II, recarved or reused by Ramses II, you'll find it. Ramses II reused the statue. He, the original commissioner, the, the person who was originally meant to depict is wearing a Hebseb gar- garment, a white crown. He was seated on a throne. There's only half of the object essentially left. You have like the part of the torso up. And so we're missing most of the back pillar inscriptions were missing the throne in general. But when Margaret Benson excavated it, she saw there was a chunk of the throne and she saw an Usar Ma'adra, Setep Enra, cartouche of Ramses II. But because it was a cached object, it was found, you know, underground. It was excavated, obviously, um, because of water damage. That part of the stone, this red granite, like literally crumbled away. But we have in the original excavation notes, right, that there was this Ramses II cartouche. So super interesting in general. But if we did not have this archaeologist note that there had been a throne and it crumbled away, if she hadn't noticed it, if something had happened before, when you look at that statue, there is no cartouche. There is nothing to identify it other than just, again, style, um, portraiture, things like this. But it's ugly. (laughs) (laughs) We'll post a picture on Substack, but it's... It is, it is, it's muddy, I think is a great, that's a nice, that's a nice way of putting it, muddy. So many reused statues are muddy. They don't have that precision of line. Yeah. Yeah. So you see, you can notice that around the eyes, the brow, the band, and really interestingly around the, for me, the way that when I studied it around the Uraeus. So this is an already published object. It was reassessed in the early nineties by Herig Sarusian. She wrote an article on it noting that this was it's called Ramses II because they had the museum knew that initially there had been this cartouche but mm, it's been reused so I thought okay what a perfect case study object to try these methods out and what I saw was again a back pillar if the listener goes and looks at the back pillar of that object it's just crumbled away like there's nothing identifiable on the back obviously everything else on the front of the object or the face you can still see but so using RTI I essentially could relight the face and you could see these places where it had already been noted it had been reused or there had been re-recarving, altering of the object on the face, around the mouth, around the nose, around the eyes, which is quite obvious because again, so muddy, so muddy. Um, there's no, there's no line visible essentially like where the brow is, the band of the crown had it looked like that had been moved. And then around the uraeus was something I don't think was noted in the original article. 
and not that this is so big and exciting, but it was exciting for me in trying to figure out what are the limitations of using these types of um, technologies to study an object. And you can see where, because you have raking light coming across the crown, Uraeus, which is on the crown, and you get raking light illuminating what's around the Uraeus, and there's like a slight divot, a slight change in polish, which is indicative of recarving. It's not as obvious when you're looking at it in person. But the real interesting thing is on the back pillar where you can't see anything. I did RTI on the back just to see. And you can see the recarving and of, of the back pillar. You can see the because uh, Ramses II puts a really deep cartouchian <laughs> to his statues, other things as well, but definitely into these statues that have been reused or originally commissioned. He's like, you cannot recarve my cartouche. Yeah. He's like, I've already done it. And you can see the raw sign and the Usar Ma'at Ra, Satipan Ra, um, and other parts of this, this typical back pillar inscription that you're going to see. But through RTI, I was able to illuminate this part of the back pillar inscription. So it can do, it can show you a lot. Since then, looking at different objects, it's usually different parts of the body or the face that have been reworked. RTI is really useful in showing a change of polish, a uh, little like indentation, chisel marks. People have done works on this, um, have, have written articles on um, finding secondary inscriptions or later and later chisel marks, secondary chisel marks using things like RTI. Uh -huh. Photogrammetry is useful for having, again, really like a, the current state of the object to be able to remote study. Um, working with red granite objects can be really, really difficult um, just because of the nature of the red granite matrix itself is, okay. is the stone is study. The stone yeah. is hard to study. Like, um, it's visually like camouflage <laughs> almost. Yeah. yeah, it's like camouflage. And so it can hide a multitude of sins. That's like, right. <laughs> with, with photogrammetry, yeah. you can just look at the... You um, can take the texture off and just look yes. at this 3D model of the object. So without something like... Gosh, that was a great way to describe it, Jordan. Um it's kind of like Stefania Mineri's work where she removes the painting from the coffin and you can just see the substructure. Exactly. In her case, it's wood plus plaster. Mm -hmm. You might have plaster on a statue, but on these hard stone statues, mm -hmm. you know, it's mostly just the stone that's left. But yeah. So yeah, so that's that's what I also employ. In addition to you have to really be super informed about the context of the object. Yeah. It's setting statues in their st settings like this is this is telling. And again, like who did it when as best huh. I can, because otherwise you're not going to get back to the intention of the alteration of the object. And then we can't really tell what has happened. So this is, uh -huh. you know, it's complex. I have one more question for you. And I want to end this. Yes. What I think is one of your really unique contributions mm -hmm. to this study is what you mentioned early on um, in the episode about incorporating the change in space as well. Mm -hmm. And that part of these maybe not the object just getting recarved or reused but that the space mm -hmm. its function might be also being changed and that it might yeah. be moving locations and it's part of the life story of these objects as well yeah so but how mm -hmm. do you see space playing into this a lot and um in part of the intention of mm -hmm. the reuse of the object why is space so important yeah. So space, like you said, the where the object ends up is usually what, like if we're researching a piece, it's like you're thinking, where was that final emplacement? And we use that to like tell the story. But I think what you were just saying, like the movement of the object, as best as we can tell, we don't always know where it came from. But oftentimes based on the like in, in the case of the Middle Kingdom statues to move away from the Amenhotep III example and instead say when Ramses or or. Um, later kings were reusing Middle Kingdom statues. They moved them from a pyramid or the um, a temple in Memphis into lining a causeway into of a new like building or structure, whatever, in, in a new capital. So I think moving the object in and of itself, I brought up this idea of like the spectacle of it, the what did it, how was it meant to be? What was the display? What is the display process of reuse, which is obviously super complicated as well. But if you move it from like a temple setting or a pyramid temple setting, let's say it's, again, a Middle Kingdom statue of Senwazra III that was meant to receive offerings in perpetuity for Senwazra, not for anyone else. But then it's taken 
It is recarved. It is moved across the landscape. There are part of the argument will be it's ritually deactivated and then it's reused to just whatever. I think that part of the movement, like if it's ritually deactivated, which again, all this is circumstantial evidence. We don't have physical evidence of this when it's just been reworked and moved. We have to just try to guess um, about how they could make this ideologically sound, because then when it's moved into a new space, into it, okay, a temple for Ramses II now, Ramses ostensibly is meant to be the one receiving the the benefits associated with that statue um, or statue cult in perpetuity. So when we try to say, oh, you know, they just want to um, take on that um you know that it's it's of their ancestors it's it's again it's pious it's pious to take their statues i don't personally understand how we can make that argument in this case if you have removed something that's not supposed to be changed it's not supposed to be altered if if the idea of ritual deactivation and reactivation is the way that they have to square it away in their minds to make it socially culturally ideologically acceptable to be put up into a new space to take on a new visage, right? A new portrait is, mm-hmm. is you know, I think such a, a very integral part of the story and the object life history. I'm cynical in thinking if you take an object from one place and you move it to somewhere pretty far away, the people in the new place won't know what it was before, right? You're taking a statue of Sun Walter III from Fayum, wherever. All those locals know that used to be a statue of Sun Walter III. But if you take it, it disappears into a workshop and then reappears mm-hmm. in P. Ramses. Well, the people in P. Ramses, they'll just be like, oh, a new statue of Ramses is showing up. Will they know that a statue disappeared from the Fayum and went on this journey? I, I mean, word spreads. We can't assume that. But I the wonder same- if it goes across better for the local population when it's not reset up in the same place that it was taken from. I don't know. I don't know, Kara, if you have anything you want to say about that, but I'll just say personally, this is where like it just becomes so difficult because how do we compare that particular example we just talked about with what we're seeing in Thebes during the reign of Ramses II? We didn't even, I'll just say, we didn't even get into any of the other moments in time where we see a bunch of statue reuse. We see it happening throughout ancient Egyptian history that there are moments where there's more reuse for all these different reasons, like with the Hyksos, um, like in the third intermediate period. One thing I think that's really cool is that Egypt practically invented the purpose-built capital. Because Mm -hmm. the Nile is always shifting, that moving river means that you can build in the Fayum at some point when you're, you know, building canals and working with that Nile then. And so you get a big capital, um, Ichitawi then. And then for whatever reason, it's not useful anymore. And they, they have a new capital. Yes, Memphis and Heliopolis have been there for millennia. Yes, Thebes lasted for that long too. But other places are kind of come and go, right? So Egyptologists have been dealing with this for a long time, that you know that you have Ichitawi for the Middle Kingdom as the capital, and then that capital moves um, to more of a Memphite Heliopolitan shift in the 18th dynasty with their Akhenaten interlude, right? And then you get a shift to Ramses, and then you get a shift to Tanis. And, the, and then, of course, it goes to the Delta in the late period. Um, you have you have Bubastis and, and all of these other locations, Sayus and, and, and as well. So you have all of these different places that become fashionable at certain times, which also helps us reconstruct movement of, mm, of statues. So if you see mm-hmm. a statue that you know was in the Fayum and is dedicated to some Fayum type go- type god originally, you can see in the old inscription and it's been and it's in Paramzi, something's going on. Mm-hmm. So and that's those are clues I know you're using too, Kylie. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes we're really lucky and they have like a dedication to a god of a specific temple. Like this is mm-hmm. I mean, exactly to your point. Yeah. So you have to work with all the clues you have and then also your the new evidence you're uncovering using your um, RTI and photogrammetry evidence and things like this. So you have a very holistically sourced uh, research project. So I think it suits you well. And I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy Friday and stopping by to chat with us about your work. I'm sure we'll have another episode with you in the future with maybe update on <laughs> where you're at, where you maybe try and maybe you have some answers for <laughs> the abundance of questions we yeah. we uh, were playing with today. But this was really fun. And I hope our listeners enjoyed 
talking about a different aspect of reuse. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening to my ramblings on ancient Egyptian statuary reuse. With obviously, we spent most of our time talking about Ramses II because it is just so easy I to. I mean, you know, he, he brought it on himself. He's great. He, yeah. You so can't great. get away from him. So thank yeah. you guys. And I'll let you take us out. I'm going to say this is, and you'll say after lies is ancient Egypt. Okay. Wait, me, Kylie? Yes, Kylie, you. Okay. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support, and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.